Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Sowing the seeds of cannabis and sounding the praise of our favorite plants, it's time to Hemp Resent. Our radio resident Hempo Sapien Vivian McPeak will present a weekly platform for guests and listeners to Hemp Resent about hemp and cannabis from the legal, activist, and reformist route. Let's round up and roll it up for our headmaster of hemp, Vivian McPeak. Welcome to Hemp Present, the weekly radio show where you can get your PhD in THC because you don't just want to burn it, you want to learn it. Seeking to defeat prohibition one interview at a time and advocating for the plant, the whole plant, and nothing but the plant. Join me for a weekly Reefer Radio Rebellion Against Prohibition as I speak with some of the principal risk takers, movers and shakers, and history makers of the cannabis industry, culture, reform movement, and beyond. I'm your host, Vivian McPeak. I am the executive director of the world's largest annual cannabis policy reform event, the Seattle Hemp Fest. In its 26th year, founded hempfest.org. I'm also the author of the book, Protestable, a 20-year retrospective of Seattle Hemp Fest from AHA Publishing, also found at hempfest.org. Transmitting from a fortified bunker under a ramshackle reefer radio war and in an undisclosed location deep within the rumbling bowels of underground Seattle. My goal is to spread the green flame of 420 truth in 30-minute increments. Today's guest on Hempresent is cannabis and brain function researcher Stacy Gruber, PhD, who will be joining me momentarily. The almost century-long state-sanctioned policy of cannabis prohibition has caused many casualties. One casualty of the policy of prohibition has been too often the truth, either by disinformation, obstruction, or simply by omission. There has been an understandable reticence on behalf of reform activists and advocates from advancing any information that could possibly support efforts to perpetuate pot prohibition. As prohibition has been in large part an information war, with the government cherry-picking which studies it would allow to take place, peer-reviewed, evidence-based, unbiased, science-supported information has in some way been hard to obtain or produce. Those of us from the 60s generation have endured all kinds of toke lore designed to scare us straight, including claims that smoking pot would make us sterile, 
destroy our memory, grow breasts on men, cause chromosome damage. That pot is highly physically addictive and perhaps the most pervasive claim that cannabis use is a gateway to harder drug use. We've at times been told that cannabis has no medical value and that it's a highly dangerous substance on par with drugs like heroin or cocaine. The cannabis reform movement and the medical marijuana community have generated their own mostly anecdotal data presenting cannabis as a relatively benign therapeutic natural substance that holds the potential to replace an arsenal of potentially cost-prohibitive, deadly, addictive pharmaceutical drugs. Cannabis has been presented as a neuroprotectant, as an anti-cancer agent, an anti-spasmodic, a liniment, uh, and as an anti-spasticity agent with no potential for death or toxic reaction or overdose. Cannabis is even used as a food source and for construction materials. It's kind of been presented as a wonder plant by the pro camp. The CDC says that there are currently 7,000 Americans becoming pot users each day. question is, does cannabis destroy ambition or does it treat anxiety? Could it do both? Could cannabis treat different people differently and at different times in their lives? Is legalization a social policy disaster in the making or is it social injustice? Or could all the above be true in some way? Now that demonstrable reforms are taking place and cannabis is on the verge of entering the mainstream, I personally feel it's imperative that the cannabis community begin to focus on and address issues where there might be a moral responsibility for our industry and culture to lead on. There may be no more important issue than that of youth and cannabis use. Children might be only 20% of our population, but they're 100% of our future. It's critical that young people develop coping skills far in advance of any doping skills to prepare them for the adversities and responsibilities of adult life in a very complex society. Children should allow their bodies and brains to develop fully before experimenting with any mood-altering substance. I believe most everybody in the cannabis community agrees with this. But the pot culture still has an opportunity and a responsibility for introspection, discovery, and leadership on this issue. And my guest today has made it, in part, her career to conduct study on the subject. And she might be able to shed light on some other aspects of cannabis use as well. Director of the Cognitive and Clinical Neuroimaging Corps and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Gruber has been published in numerous journals as involved in the application of behavioral science to help shape policies regarding juvenile advocacy. She also directs the Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery or MIND project at McLean Hospital in the suburb of Boston, designed to clarify the effects of recreational and most recently medical marijuana on brain structure, function, and quality of life. And she's been kind enough to take time out of her important work to join me today. Welcome, Stacey, to present on Cannabis Radio. Well, thanks so much for having me. You might actually have a PhD in THC if there is such a thing. <laughs> be a pretty amazing thing if there were, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yes. Stacey, using marijuana a few times a week is enough to physically alter critical brain structures according to a study published journal of neuroscience. So you're being interviewed today by an altered brain structure, let me assure you. Um, But you have in your work (laughs) used cognitive testing and neuroimaging on cannabis users and more. How concerned does the data indicate that the casual pot smoker or regular pot smoker like myself, how, how concerned should we be considering that we might be trying to alter some aspects of our precious brain structure? You know, it's a question, and most of what we know about the effects of cannabis on the brain, whether it's brain structure, brain function, behavior, really comes from studies of pretty chronic, heavy-using individuals. And the biggest take-home message we get from those studies, including my own, 
is really it has a lot to do with the age at which you start, how much, and how often you use. I get this question a lot. Well, how much is okay then? Um, and I think it's a great question and one that remains largely unanswered because different people use different products in different ways and certainly in different frequencies and, and um, amounts. So it, it really does depend. And I think there's been a lot of concern about the quote, casual user versus the more chronic user. It's very easy to see differences in chronic heavy marijuana users versus those who don't use at all. But it's a much greater area when we get to the more casual users, the people who are using maybe two or three times a week, especially when we consider, again, the varying potencies of the different products they use. It's a great, it's a great thing that needs more exploration for sure. And there's a lot more people who are using casually in the country than are using, you know, 22.2 million or so report use in the last month. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. So your, your, your work shows that. Uh, people who begin using regularly before the age of 16 have uh, a more problems with altered patterns of brain activity and less organized white matter compared to those who begin smoking later on or those don't smoke at all. What does it mean, less organized white matter? So white matter, you know, when we think about the brain, it's, it's comprised of gray matter, white matter, and cerebrospinal fluid all in this lovely little package, right, in our head. And while gray matter is the hardworking you know, cell bodies, white matter is responsible for connecting one brain region to another. I sort of think of it as the brain's highway system. Um, how do you communicate one impulse from an area to another? And organized white matter allows you to communicate efficiently, quickly. So when we think about things that are less organized, we think about things that are less efficient and likely to be I guess I would say have less integrity. So when you have white matter that's really intact and well organized and everything is working as it should, things are moving along exactly as you'd want them to be. Alterations in that pattern may wind up causing disruptions in communication from one brain region to another. So that's that's the potential problem. We've all seen people in public that are visibly abusing alcohol, and sometimes you see people who are obviously using some form of hard drug because of their physical appearance and their behavior. Are the dangers of prolonged cannabis use often too subtle and incremental for us to make that connection? Is it harder to identify when someone may have been impacted long-term by cannabis use? Another really great question. I think it depends on the, the tools that you use. Certainly, you know, the fact that it sits in Schedule 1 allows a lot of people to say, listen, it's a really terrible substance and we know it causes all sorts of trouble for children and adolescents you know before a certain age when you compare the deleterious or the negatives of cannabis to other substances let's say heroin um you can't die from an overdose of cannabis you have to try really really hard and it, it's physically impossible to do it so is it is it tougher to see the effects of long-term cannabis use probably you know I remind everybody that the folks that we see who are kind enough to come in and be our research subjects are walking, talking human subjects that are doing really well in school. Uh, by and large, these are not potatoes, I like to tell people. These are people who are doing well overall. And it's only when you begin to sort them out between those who begin using early and perhaps are using you know, higher frequency and amounts than relative to other folks that you begin to see differently, not as if people are globally impaired across across the board in terms of everything they try to do. That's that's for sure. That you're not going to necessarily see somebody stumbling and bumbling on a corner unless they're acutely intoxicated. They just got, you know, some white widow or some strawberry cough or something. They just hit it. That's a little bit different from sort of the chronic heavy hitting 
quote, drug abuser that we all think of in a sort of stereotyped way. The average THC content for cannabis sold retail in Colorado uh, on that note is around 18%, but it fluctuates. How does potency factor into the effects on, on brain chemistry, if that's the correct term? That's a, it's a great question, and I'll tell you, there's been very little work in this particular area. And, you know, when we think about potency, we think about percent THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, what binds to your receptors. We have this great system in our, in our brains and bodies, the endocannabinoid system. And the reason it's 18%, you know, is because of THC. That's what people are looking for in terms of altering their current state. Our current national average, by the way, is about 12%. So, you know, on the West Coast, we have much higher percentages. People, people are, are, are definitely getting higher percentages there. But is it likely that we'll see more negative effects associated with higher potency products? It's possible. Do we know for sure? No. Some people say that individuals will titrate their use and use less product if it's a higher potency product. If it's a glass, a shatter, for example, than a conventional flower product with a lower percentage THC, the operating assumption would be that higher potency would result in greater difficulties with cognitive tasks and likely greater changes in brain structure and function relative to products with lower THC or some of the other cannabinoids which have been shown to be potentially protective like cannabidiol, uh, cannabinol, cannabichromine, things like that. My guest is Dr. Stacy Gruber. We're going to take our first pause for the cause because there's flaws in the laws here. We're from our sponsors and advertisers. Come back right back. Don't go anywhere. Time to roll out for the people that let us hemp present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Play as Ted Growing, expelled botany sophomore and the biggest grower in town, only on Weed Firm Replanted. Available on the App Store and Google Play. It's a lot of work being the biggest grower in town. Maintaining a room full of plants while dealing with a slew of eccentric customers, from a hardcore partier to the curious neighbor next door. Is anybody home? Help me expand my bud business by unlocking new strains, customizing my grow room, and completing challenges that you can't get enough of. Grow your empire so big you can see it from space. Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is free to download. Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing. (sighs) Cash? Sorry. I don't carry around cash, and I don't want to use the ATM and pay surcharges. You don't need to carry cash. Haven't you heard about PayQuick? Okay, tell me about PayQuick. It's the safe and easy way to pay. It works just like your debit card to securely pay for your purchase and gives you rewards points every time you use it. Nice. Pay quick. The safe and easy way to pay. P-A-Y-Q-W-I-C-K dot com. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the Seed to Sale Show, January 31st and February 1st at the Colorado Convention Center in Denver. Register now at www.seedtosaleshow.com or 888-409-4418. The NCIA See the Sale Show, the largest cannabis business event to be held in Denver, will host over 2,000 cannabis professionals and focus on innovations and technology in cultivation, infused products and extraction, and sales strategies. The show will recognize the best in the industry with the Cannovation and Canatech Awards. Register before January 6th for $100 savings at seedtosaleshow.com. Use the code RADIO15 for an additional 15% off. Plan your experience now for the NCIA Seed to Sale Show, January 31st and February 1st. SeedToSaleShow.com or 
409-4418. We don't limit how much you smoke, and we don't limit where you listen. Cannabis Radio is now on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we're back on Hemp Present for our second segment with Dr. Stacy Gruber. Uh, Dr. Gruber, with the previous uh, questions and answers in mind, what, what do you think the most important thing for parents to know about cannabis use? What should they be most concerned about uh, in the context of their children? Personally, I think the greatest thing a parent can do is make sure that the lines of communication are open. So what we know are messages of prohibition, for example, you know, just say no. They don't work. And we know kids are using it. If we just look at national statistics, we know kids are using it. And actually, they're using it younger and younger ages. Messages that allow kids to understand why we're not saying no, we're just saying not yet, have actually been fairly efficacious. If you explain to kids, adolescents, emerging adults, why it is they need to wait, you know, your brain is under construction, you're half-baked, you can use any euphemism you want, but it's really important to make sure your kids are talking to you and hashing things, see, see there's the pun, hashing things out, um, hashing things out with you to sort of get an idea of what they're doing and why it's important that they may not want to necessarily indulge too often before a certain age. We know they're going to use it, it's our job to make sure they understand the ramifications and to help them use in the safest ways possible. So I would say communication, big time. Tens of thousands of American patients, if not more, are self-administering cannabis to themselves in an effort to treat or manage a variety of symptoms and conditions, which is really an unprecedented departure from the traditional centralized systems of medicine practiced in America. Is that a good thing, a bad thing, or is it too complicated or too early for that kind of assessment? So, I, you know, I think left with the current status, patients are having to do whatever they need to do to be able to get medicine. And for many people, cannabis and cannabinoid-based therapies have changed their lives. And they're self-administering after getting certified or maybe not even getting certified, depending, and experiencing, in large part, real improvement. The trouble is, how do you translate that into something where individuals who are practitioners can help oversee that? At the moment, there's really no way for individuals to get guidance the dispensaries can only guide patients and, and consumers so much, and I think that's a really, really tough thing. I get this a lot from folks in our medical marijuana study. You know, who do I go to to ask about strains and how much and how often? How do I decarboxylate? What do I do? And the truth is there's no great system yet, and I think it's one that will begin to evolve. It's certainly begun to evolve already, again, faster in the West than in the East um, in terms of the coasts, but it's something that clearly bears a lot more work because you have patients who are really desperate and who experience relief and know where to turn when they have questions or, or issues. But it's a, it's a really mind-boggling thing to see people take control of what I call the ultimate in personalized medicine and begin to understand how they may be able to utilize some of these products to their tremendous benefit. Is it true that some patients, uh, like for example, those with bipolar disorder, seem to self-medicate with cannabis more frequently than with other substances? And if so, why do you think that is? That's a great question. And 
The most commonly used substance for a patient with bipolar disorder is alcohol. The most commonly used currently, quote, illicit substance by federal standards is cannabis. And, you know, we've, we've done some work with these folks and we spend lots of time trying to understand it. We, we think it actually has to do with a potential mood stabilizing properties that are inherent in some strains of cannabis. And, you know, if you ask these patients, they'll tell you when I feel like I'm spiraling towards mania, I take a couple of hits and... I feel calm. I feel chill. When I feel like I'm really depressed, these are other patients, I take a couple of hits and somehow life doesn't seem so bad. I don't know of any other substance I've ever heard that about. That's actually what got me started in, in assessing sort of the potential, I guess, pros and cons of these types of things. And in this population, it's pretty amazing. Lots of folks say they really have a mood stabilizing benefit after using cannabis for hours. And actually, we've published a couple of papers on this. They're small pilot studies but they are certainly incredibly encouraging, at least for a subset of patients. It makes sense when we think about what we know about some of the cannabinoids and how they work with regard to neural circuitry and what some of our mood stabilizers are basically modeled on. So it, it's not outside the realm of possibility. The big problem is those patients don't ever want to tell their psychiatrist that they're using cannabis, and as a result, their treatment regimen may not necessarily be optimized. And when strains change or availability becomes a problem, you may have a disruption in their ability to maintain that, that mood stability. That's, that's the potential downside. So again, communication factors hugely into this equation. Could some of this be because we have cannabinoid receptors in our, on our pre-existing in our brain structures? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The endocannabinoid system is a rather remarkable system of receptors and chemicals and the way that it works is when you use cannabis or cannabinoid products, um, it either binds to you know CB1 or CB2 receptors, or it has maybe weak affinity. It depends on what you're using again and how you're taking the product, but that's exactly why. And for most patients with bipolar disorder and lots of other folks who are using things that are either combusted or vaped, you know, they have an immediate effect. And that's because what they're using has THC that's binding to CB1 receptors and they really do experience relief. So that's, that's exactly the reason why. And it makes, again, from a biologic perspective, it makes sense. I always tell my colleagues, there's a reason patients are using cannabis. It's not free. You can't just get it outside. I know it's easy to get pretty much everywhere, but there's a reason they're using it. And we should ask more questions about why, because I think this holds extraordinary promise. You know, if you can utilize cannabinoid-based medicine and not necessarily introduce psychoactivity, and get mood stabilization, that's a pretty happy day in my book. Dr. Gruber, some data is produced by entities who are biased by their very mission statement or job description. I would understand a diplomatic answer to this. But the Office of National Drug Control Policy, for example, <laughs> exists to reduce drug use, just like NIDA does. But they both cite their own studies. Uh, is, is, is that a factor, you think, or a cause for alarm from people like me? Uh, so for people like you, you know, who are trying to spread the word about uh, what I would like to call the truth about cannabis, because there's the good, the bad, and then there's the truth, right? And it's important to keep yeah. a balanced perspective. And I think we need a whole lot more balance in the world. Personally, I, I, I am often confronted with people who cannot understand why I'm interested in understanding the potential downside, should there be some, to individuals who are young and still developing with regard to their brain and maybe the potential upside in terms of medical utility. Um, and by the way, there's a whole world in between. So, you know, is it a problem? I, 
I think that NIDA has tried very, very hard to expand their platform of, for example, uh, cannabis products, different strains available for researchers. Does that mean that those that the strains that they're growing that you can use for your research are going to be pretty close to what you get on the street or at dispensaries? Nope, definitely not. Is it better than having nothing? Absolutely. Are we getting closer through NIDA? Sure. Um, do we need at least some reform with regard to allowing researchers like me to be able to study the very products our patients are taking through dispensaries or through their home growers, you know, or their, their friends or family, whomever? Absolutely. Uh, the whole point is to understand what products patients and, and consumers are taking and what effect they have for good and for, for, for bad, you know, for example. So, you know, when I think about the mission statement of ONDCP and NIDA, NIDA's, again, tried very, very hard to expand their platform, I think, also with regard to research studies that are being funded for potential utility. I think it's early in the game, and it's certainly better than it was. So that's, that's encouraging. And I think, again, you're smart to be mindful of where data comes from. And, you know, uh, it's, all, it's always important to, to keep a balanced approach and to, and to really take all perspectives into consideration. Yeah, and, and I think one of the uh, byproducts of prohibition is that those of us on this side of the issue uh, have been uh, very resistant to any information which isn't uh, positive about cannabis just because, you know, we've been afraid it's going to be used to perpetuate prohibition, which, which seems like a failed approach regardless of the impacts of cannabis. You know, putting somebody in prisons or jails isn't very healthy for you either. Some would argue a lot less healthy no. for your mental and physical health than, than, than using some pot. Most assuredly. And this is something, you know, this isn't new. It's not synthesized in a lab. It's been around since 2700 BC at least. You know, the Chinese used it as medicine. There is no other substance I can think of that was in the U.S. pharmacopoeia that physicians prescribed for a range of indications. And then suddenly not only was it out of the pharmacopoeia, now it's a Schedule One substance. So, you know, that's a pretty storied past. And I think, I think you're right. I think a lot of folks don't want to hear anything potentially negative about cannabis and the one great thing about recreational uh, marijuana cannabis research is that it's starting to really open up. You know, our work focuses on the negative impact of early onset. But what about the later onset folks, the folks who use after age 16 pretty regularly and pretty heavily? In most cases, they look more like the non-using healthy, quote, healthy control subjects than the chronic early onset folks. So that's important because it really does mean there's this neurodevelopmental window, a window of vulnerability for example, that you don't want to necessarily use of cannabis and, in, and high frequency before you're a certain age. After that, is it really so dangerous? It remains to be seen. So it's important to, again, you know, keep the conversation open and have researchers that have open minds because your data is your going to surprise you, that's for sure. Stacy, in that context, uh, we've got a new presidential administration coming. It looks like a cabinet of scorched earth anti-legalization uh, folks. There's some concern in the reform community that maybe a schedule change is coming, but a schedule two change, which some feel may pharmaceuticalize, for the lack of a better word, uh, cannabis, and may could greatly impact, uh, greatly undermine some of the uh, advances that the reform movement has made. In your opinion, should cannabis remain Schedule One? Should it be Schedule Two, or like alcohol and tobacco, be exempted entirely from the Controlled Substances Act? Again, it's a, another really great question. And the Controlled Substance Act classified cannabis at a time when there was really very little data 
And you never want to have something done because of something you don't have. That's a bad idea. I think that all the data should be considered. And clearly, the current state versus federal uh, legislation really has, I mean, there's a huge disparity between state and federal restriction, right? And clearly, states have decided there is absolutely medical benefit. And now we have a state plus D.C. who say recreational marijuana is fine. Federal government still says absolutely not. Schedule one, they've reconsidered classification this year and refused. So, you know, I think it's a it's a really complex topic, and I think that most people would argue that at least some constituents of the plant should be descheduled altogether. The non psychoactive constituents of the plant that lots of folks are taking that we can, we are not allowed to study it. Perhaps those are are clearly the ones to focus on first. The rest of the plant, in terms of you know declassifying it. I think there's some great arguments for treating it like alcohol. There's some other arguments that really say what we need to do is be mindful of what happened with tobacco and with alcohol and make sure we don't quote, have the same problem. So it's a, it's a complicated issue, but I think the current status at Schedule 1 makes things absolutely impossible from a number of perspectives. So I am curious as, as the rest of the world sits waiting to see what, what our new legislation does. I'm speaking to her, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. We are going to take our second pause, hear a word from our advertisers and sponsors, and come back for our final questions. Time to roll out for the people that let us hemp present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Do you want to get in on the booming cannabis industry? With new frontier data, we give industry insiders the power of big data analytics to help navigate this rapidly growing and changing landscape. New Frontier's tools help you make critical decisions based on the facts. Our industry analyst reports reveal the best opportunities. Our custom research engagements deliver answers to the most difficult questions. And our cutting-edge big data platform, Equio, puts real-time information and answers you need right at your fingertips. Go to www.equio.io and sign up for your free membership today. That's EQU. IO.io to sign up now. The power of real time big data is now in your hands. Run with New Frontier and let us help you conquer the wild. Mindful of sustainable practices and limiting their environmental footprint, Sansal hemp is always grown outdoors as nature intended. By starting with uniform genetic profiles, Sansal ensures the plant will maintain its optimal performance and yield consistently throughout its life cycle. It is through innovative processes that Sansal is able to achieve pure whole hemp extracts and meet industry requirements and the level of quality desired by many of their customers. Healthy plants, healthy people. SansalCBD.com. Improve your lifestyle naturally. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. Bought a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow! The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put different celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is Hemping, that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Legal to listen to all over the world. 
We're just not sure about France. Cannabisradio.com. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we're back on Hemp Presents on Cannabis Radio with Dr. Stacy Gruber. Dr. Gruber, I've, uh, I'm a vegetarian for off and on for 35, almost 40 years. I've never smoked tobacco once. Me too. Uh, I, I don't drink alcohol, and I haven't for decades. But I started smoking cannabis when I was 13. I started using it regularly. When I was about 16, I've smoked pot daily for over 40 mm-hmm. years, and I still use it off and on. Is there any hope for a guy like me? <laughs> There's more than hope for a guy like you. I mean, look at you. Look what you're doing. You know, the, the greatest prediction of how you will do is what you're doing. And for many, many people, using cannabis daily does not become problematic. And in fact, the majority of people do not develop a problem with cannabis after using it regularly. For a small percentage, there are problems and some issues associated with it. But there's certainly, quote, hope. I'd, I'd, say, I'd say you're doing okay. I think you're, you're, you're looking pretty good. Well, you know, I have to tell you that it hasn't always been – it's not always great. I have experienced you know, anxiety at times, and I, I certainly don't – I don't imbibe before my radio show, even though I could probably pull it off. I just wouldn't feel comfortable. But in, in the, we got about maybe uh, 30 seconds remaining. Uh, how can people find out more about your important work? You know, I think checking out our website, drstacygruber.com, is a great way. We have lots of different pieces of information about our ongoing studies and what we're doing, what we're working on for recreational and medical marijuana patients. Uh, we have a CCNC lab website as well that comes off of there, and that's, that's a great way. You can follow me on Twitter, Dr. Stacy Gruber, at Dr. Stacy Gruber. Um, those are probably the best ways to, to, to figure it out. McLeanHospital.org, our lovely hospital, also posts our latest news feeds and uh, our publications and sort of what's happening in and around the lab as well. Dr. Gruber, I'm so thankful that somebody like you has taken on this subject. Your work is so impressive. Uh, You are so impressive. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show and, and the best of luck with you and your work. Hempy Trails to you. Well, thank you so much for all you do. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you. All right. Take care. Now I want to get to a weekly feature him present on CannabisRadio.com. That's the quote of the week, and here it is, and I quote, Don't worry that children never listen to you. Worry that they're always watching you. And that's Robert Fulgham. That concludes this installment him present on Cannabis Radio. I want to thank Brasco in the control room and all the Cannabis Radio sponsors and advertisers. Join me next week for Spartan Cannabis Confabulation with some special Hempo sapien on a journey to justice. Because when it comes to prohibition, you have the right not to remain silent. Activism requires a voice, so find yours and speak up for justice because resistance is fertile. Until then, my my friends, stay strong, stand tall, and take it easy. Don't forget to email me at hempresent.com. Excuse me, at hempresent at gmail.com. The Hempresent theme song, Take Back the Plants, performed by Stickerbush, sung by a much younger version of myself. You can hear the whole song, and it's entirely by Googling Stickerbush, Take Back the Plant. Turn up the music, maestro, because I'm out. Marijuana!
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.